Matter is much older than life. Billions of years before the Sun and Earth even formed, atoms were being synthesized in the insides of hot stars and then returned to space when the stars blew themselves up. Newly formed planets were made of this stellar debris. The Earth and every living thing are made of star stuff. America for 300 years has been the land of promise for the rest of the world. The land of new frontiers, new opportunities. Yeah, we can't handle the cat app. Clicking sounds, sounds that reveal the presence of radioactive rays. The instrument, a Geiger counter, is converting radioactivity into sounds we can hear. And the hell with it. Good evening and welcome to Tank Riot. This is episode 94 where we discuss the contributions of one of my personal favorites, Carl Sagan. I'm Sputnik. With me as always is Victor. Hello. And of course, Tor. Hello. I was actually thinking of changing my name to Mr. Standish. (laughs) I don't know why, but I just like that name. (laughs) Maybe I'll have Mr. Standish as a guest every once in a while. Just to to promote the complete breakdown of my emotional landscape. (laughs) Yeah, uh, well... You know, in researching uh, Carl Sagan, uh, not that I had to do that much because I've, like I say, I'm a longtime fan, (laughs) first time caller. (laughs) I was beginning to think that maybe we should have our douchebag gallery and our Man of La Mancha series where, you know, we go to the irrepressible douchebags and then we go to the people that were visionaries and lived just long enough to see everything they've done undermined, (laughs) you know, because it seems like we, we could probably umbrella quite a few of our episodes like Emma Goldman and you know, Walter Cronkite and so forth with, you know, certainly under that uh, auspice, but. Uh, or just <laughs> Meredith in that one episode of Twilight Zone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to say which one, because he oh, was sorry. on so many. My glasses. Oh, yeah. Now there's finally <laughs> enough time. Yeah. <laughs> I think about 1,300 people have told us that we should do a podcast on Carl Sagan. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. that. And well-deserved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carl Sagan, I, I think, is he's he's a true seventies icon. Yeah, but I think that's where he really got the notoriety and the things. It, it's it's such a different time context from from where we are now, where our space program, robotic and manned, is pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. They they had an announcement the other day. They said, "Whoa, we can expect to land a man on Mars in twenty thirty. Who gives a shit? You know, <laughs> I mean, so what? I can name any arbitrary date too." <laughs> Yeah, there, there should be a new yeah. grunge movement based on the stagnation of NASA. It's just really, really disgusting, even for someone like myself who was pretty excited about what was going on. Oh, I yeah. mean, the, yeah. with the space, mm-hmm. with the space shuttle, in, even in general, with a couple of major accidents that threw crippling problems and delays into the space program, and then all of a sudden, yeah, we're using you know the Atlantis just touched down for the last time, right? Probably, <laughs> probably. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like the B fifty two. I mean, the B fifty two has been up to, to retire by like twenty thirty. Well, about the time when we land on Mars, the B fifty two will finally land for the last. Yeah, time. it might be the first one hundred year plane. Yeah, Nick, you know, when you stop to think of that, I mean, you know, the British Navy used to do things like that, but I can understand that if you're going by wind power and it's made of English oak, yes, you can probably keep a ship in service for a hundred years. But but I'm guessing a B-52 has a few more moving parts. Yeah. But 
Yep. People who fly in them always say that it just smells inside because, you know, like so many people have spent oh, so bet. many hours yeah. in that. You know, I, I saw a film once of um, a B-52 landing in a high wind, and it was actually the landing gear is made so that the, the the gear will stay straight no matter how the plane's oriented. So this thing was oh, like okay. pointed way off but still landing, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, that's got to just suck. <laughs> So you're looking out the you corner of your up, eye. Yeah, yeah, roll down the window, <laughs> look out back. Wow. That's got to suck. But, you know, I never liked the shuttle. Quite honestly, I never liked the space shuttle. I just, it, it, I mean, I grew up with, you know, Gemini and Apollo and the Saturn Vs. I just love those big multi-stage mm-hmm. rockets. Whereas this, but now speaking of, you know, something that probably won't retire anytime soon, the Soyuz is going to take over pretty much for everything for the International Space Station. And that's going to be just the workhorse for the foreseeable future. Right. Yeah. You know, it's like if you watch uh, Star Trek Enterprise, you know, you look at the the intro and it's only, it's been a long time. Yeah. Well, it's going to be even fucking longer. It'll so. be even longer. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look for Zephram Cochran anytime soon. Yeah. No we'll, we'll probably get more into it later, but Carl Sagan really wasn't a big fan of the space shuttle either. No, the space and, truck. And, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it had some major problems and, and reliability is one of the big ones, but it, it's a lot of money for what it does. Yeah. And, and, and I think part of the space program, you have to blame it on Congress too, which kept cutting NASA's budget. Not that NASA didn't make mistakes, but, you know, the Congress and the people who elected them really didn't even, didn't understand, you know, what the space program could be. Well, it's, I always remember that line from the really awful movie Armageddon that Steve Buscemi said just before they were ready to lift off. He said, hey, (laughs) this thing was built by the lowest bidder. How's that make you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. Well, a little shaky. Uh-huh. I was just gonna say, you know, in memoriam for Dennis Hopper, mm. we oh, could, yeah. yeah, we could watch uh, Space Truckers. <laughs> Space Truckers was a great movie. Yeah. Mr. Hopper is is probably one of my favorite movie stars. I watched a lot of his movies, many of which I I don't think should have ever been released. Well, in in Waterworld, but, he was a bad guy because he smoked. That's right. That's right. And I remember at the time he looked at a picture of the captain of the Exxon Valdez and said, "Well." We're going to make you proud, Captain, right. or something like that. And thinking, Phew. yeah, well, drop in the bucket. What do you work for, now. BP? Wow. Yeah, BP. Yeah. Thank you so much, BP. Yeah, the Valdez had a finite amount of oil inside of it. Oh, the leak is brought to you in high definition now, so I don't know if you've been enjoying that on your HDTV. Oh, no, okay. there's only yeah. so much depression I can handle in a day. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, oh, it's so well lit and so crisp. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I, I did see the poster that someone posted from a BP store that said something about not spilling because you are responsible for all spills. Right. Yeah. <laughs> BP. <laughs> yeah. We don't care. We don't have to. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. That English twit CEO is unbelievable. Oh. Well, I'd like my life back, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, between that and the news of uh, Prince William's inevitable royal breeding... Just... You gotta get off the BBC News a little bit. <laughs> no, I just I, I rarely the monarchy stumble just, on Prince William. The, the English monarchy. Well, because they just keep talking about it. it's like, oh, here's Prince William. Yeah. He looks like the classic upper class twit of the year. And then um already balding, already looking so much like Chuck. And then with his new upper class blue blood breeding stock. Because I mean, let's be honest, that's essentially what they are. They're mm-hmm. breeding stock. Mm-hmm. They're not really better than anyone else. They're just one chromosome away from madness. Their family tree is a straight line. So, any Gary yeah. Coleman jokes? Have you heard any? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. Me too. 
Like, well, uh, the one that I got was a picture. It said it just the subject was just Gary Coleman's casket. Yeah, right. It's the cooler, and it's a Coleman cooler. Yeah. No, I saw the I saw the uh, CSI one that that had the fact that he had died from multiple different strokes. Different strokes. <laughs> oh man, he died from different strokes. <laughs> Bad cartoon. Bad cartoon. Yeah, it was too bad because I remember him on... uh, Oh, I got to tell you guys this. Saturday night I was watching RTV, Mm -hmm. and they always have on Buck Rogers in the 25th century followed by Battlestar Galactica. The the original, not the the new, much better one. The one with the dog. Yeah, Uh right. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Well, the dog and, and the kid were actually gone by this time, so this was like really later in the series. But anyways... What really astounded me is that I, I I watched both episodes all the way through, and I actually remembered mm-hmm. when I had first saw them. The one, first one was uh, for Buck Rogers called Vegas in Space, and that was just like a lot Uh-oh. of scantily clad disco women, <laughs> and just the, the cheesiest possible plot you can imagine. So much lycra, it would just it just made your eyes hurt. Yeah, I think I saw that one other. It might have been another episode with a bunch of scantily clad space ladies. That, that, yeah. That's pretty that's much all, was the show. Yeah. 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 And Tweaky looks like a dildo. <clears throat> I don't care what anyone says. <clears throat> My God, look at the way his head is constructed. Now, before oh, yeah. I say about the old Battlestar Galactica, can you believe that Starbuck was a dude? That's so weird that they chose yeah. that direction. I'm but glad anyway, they went yeah, with yeah. the lesbian this time. <laughs> but, you know, we should mention our 70s reference from a couple weeks ago. Sputnik and I attended a gala event <laughs> of Yacht Rock. Yacht Rock. Uh, if, if you haven't seen the interweb uh, series, you must. Just, just Google Yacht Rock and you'll get the whole 12 episodes and they're very much worth watching. I'm Hollywood Steve. You've caught me murdering a homeless woman. Tonight's story is one of my favorites. We've talked about one of the best standing, rotating bands in town. It's been around for 25 years, apparently. Yeah, yeah the Gomers. The Gomers. Yeah. And uh, they did a special Yacht Rock version of their show, which was all smooth, smooth rock from the 70s. I, there was so many wow. smooth rock songs that they did. And I would say very well. And if you wore white pants and deck shoes, you got in for half price. There, <laughs> there were captain's hats. There were Everyone was dressed to the nines. And they showed on a huge screen above uh, Love Boat episodes and Das Boat, they, uh, which I thought <laughs> both went beautifully. Awesome. But what was fascinating to me is how many people came with captain's hats. And I don't mean like one you'd get from a costume store, but I mean, these guys actually look like, yeah, they kind of wear these all the time, you know? Huh. So it it was, you know, one song that I had never placed as Yacht Rock and I felt so stupid <laughs> was Brandy. I never thought of that, but I thought, oh my God, it's got all the elements. It's very smooth and it's about sailing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I did that. Danger was... zone, Kenny. That's not smooth. <laughs> so they hit some Christopher Cross. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Oh, yeah. There, there was. Oh, oh, yeah. When Steve Burke, the guitar player, took the mic, he was great. He exploded. I can't remember which song the first one was, but it was just. A brilliant rendition. Yeah, <laughs> the one the the keyboardist was so good when he he did uh, Meridian. Yeah, he's so into it. <laughs> I'm not talking about Meridian. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you if you don't know what we're talking about, this retro yacht rock explosion started with the yacht rock series that that kind of dramatized uh, Loggins and Messina creating their brilliant smooth yacht music. <sighs> 
and why it was so much better than this horrible rock and roll that people like Hall and Oates were doing. And they all, all these young, all these guys played these characters and pretended to be these people and, and did it so well. It's really a funny web series. One of the originals that just is brilliant. It, it actually, it, it's almost like a conspiracy theory in the way they weave all these different yes. groups and, yeah. And you know events together. Speaking of which, oh they my... get to Toto, they get to Michael Jackson, they oh, get to all of these guys. They really do. Holly Notes. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the one thing, the one thing that I, I saw today, in fact, was um, they have this series called Unsolved History, and it was about the death of Marilyn Monroe. And if you haven't seen Unsolved History, these guys, it's its kind of like Deadliest Warrior, mm-hmm. where they're just like these geeks that go, no, you shut up. A ninja is much better than a Viking. No, a Viking's much better. You know, and then they have these simulations and it's just really kind of sad. But they, <laughs> in Unsolved History, they'll, they'll do this weird shit like, you know, the plot to kill Hitler. And they'll actually like build a wooden shed and put all these dummies filled with yogurt to simulate blood. And then they actually had one dressed like Hitler with a little mustache and everything. It's like, okay, here's one with two charges now that if Stauffenberg had time and they just, you know, blows to shit and they go, nice. Yep. Yep. I think that would have worked. <laughs> so today was about the death of Marilyn Monroe. And they actually got this model, this woman, this blonde woman, very, very lovely blonde woman to, you know, kind of sit under the sheets naked like they found Marilyn yeah, Monroe. Now we know why they're doing this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking, it's like, wow, how do you cast for that science experiment? Need Marilyn Monroe double. <laughs> It was fascinating. It's like, and so they had her do all these things like, you know, well, they weren't the real pills, but it's like, can you take these 25 Demerols? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what did I sign up for? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So she's like holding the sheet up and everything and taking the Demerols and then laying face down like Marilyn Monroe. It was just bizarre. Wow. So, well, and then they also had one just before that on JFK. And this time they, they had a much... Uh, I thought kind of an interesting idea because there were so many people that took still photos and movies that they kind of strung all of them together and then had this kind of master model of all the areas viewed. And they were saying, okay, so if you look at it like this, and then they strung this together and this together and this together, and you can, it actually comes out. But, you know, in the end, it all comes down to the Zabruder kill shot, you know, right. I mean, that's it. Anyhow, <laughs> but we are digressing. We need to get back to Carl. But next. Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Yeah. I'm sure probably most of our listeners remember him from the Cosmos series, A Personal Journey. Yeah, I think we should talk about that a personal but later. Voyage, I should say. But later. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I think it okay. overshadows a lot of his earlier work. Yes, but I think that's probably how most people would remember him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, from, from the from the Cosmos series. But yes, he, he had an incredible body of work. He was uh, uh, an astronomer. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, born in 1934. Well, actually, he was an astronomer, astrophysicist. Um, he wrote over 600 scientific papers and uh, 20, and either was an author, co-author, or editor of 20 books, including uh, Contact, which was made into a movie. That would be another right uh, Carl Sagan reference. That right. You know, the only thing I can remember, about, I mean, I like that movie a lot, and I read the book. And oh, I, I don't go Busey on me. It was the Busey guy. <laughs> it was the Busey kid. Those don- he was the religious fanatic that blew up the. And he, you know, I just, I can never get those donkey teeth right. out of my head. <laughs> Poor Jake Busey can't get out of the shadow oh, of his father. He, he look, He's like an extreme version of his father. I know, I know. He's like an X-Men Busey. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to verify this, but m- my guess is that that character was based on Larry Norman, mm. who was a, oh. uh, a 
Christian rock musician. Back the, to Frank Black. Frank Black has covered Larry Norman and really? loves the, the just the silliness of Larry Norman. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, Larry Norman has done some stuff I, mm. I like, and I've I've met him and I've seen his concert. However, he was um, critical of. Uh, the space program. He didn't see why we needed to spend money on, you know, to go to the moon. Yeah. So right. he, he that would have made him sort of the arch enemy of Carl Sagan. Right. You know, no, like, yes. the evil nemesis. I gotta say, for, yeah. for for Pixies fans, Frank Black and the Catholics did a song called Six Sixty Six on one of their albums, and I think that was originally written by Larry Norman. I think and, so. Yeah, yeah. and oh, sung cool. seriously, but Frank did it just like a crazy country oh, yeah. version. Yeah, freaky, yeah. freaky. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. speaking of the Pixies, no. uh, they were the, like the latest band to not go to Israel to play for any reason because oh, really? of the recent incidents with the blockade in Gaza and the seizing of the ships okay. in international waters. So yeah. explain that away, Israel. Yeah. That way, Helen Thomas doesn't have to go to Israel to see the Pixies play. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> who was it? There was a correspondent they were playing yeah. on Democracy Now. Who was? Did you hear that episode tour? Where she was saying, it's like, oh, they all ought to go back to Poland or Germany or America, wherever the hell they're from. And I'm like, well, that's not really a solution either. I mean, well, that was Helen Thomas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that Helen Thomas? That was yeah, Helen Thomas. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. why she resigned. Yeah. I, I mean, she's yeah. 90. She should have resigned 15 years ago. But yeah. Yeah. But I mean, she put it out there. She was holding the torch. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was yeah. just a really bad way to go out. But mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you could go over the top in Israel, but there is room for criticism for sure. Right. Um, well, I mean, it certainly. I, I mean, I would. I would put Israel in the same category now under its extreme right wing government that I would have put America under the last eight years for Bush. You know, I mean, it's it's not necessarily yeah. like all America is bad or Israel is bad or anything like that. It's just no. You you have fanatics that are are leading your government. They have too much sp- power. Yeah. You're spinning everything to make it mm-hmm. look like whatever you do is right, no matter what, and that's ridiculous. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the flotilla was aware of that with their camera placement and everything, and catching it all on film in international waters. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it. No, was no a didn't they name the ship the Rachel advantage. Corey? I think you're right. Yeah, who was killed by the Israelis because she was helping Palestinians right. um, a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very ugly affair all the way around. Actually, there's a lot of hot spots in the world right now. I mean, North Korea is certainly on a war posture with, you know, Kim Jong Il ill and his. One of his sons, who there's only a picture of when he was nine that's ever been published, and uh, you know, torpedoing of the South Korean ship. I mean, certainly that's a very tense area. Iran is getting, you know, when, when, every time I read that there's more sanctions against North Korea and Iran, I mean, really, how many more can you have? Right. It's, it seems yeah. like you, if you take everything else away, then okay. Well, really, this is why more people need to study Carl Sagan, because if you start understanding what science, the way he looked at it, mm-hmm. suddenly you find yourself more interested in those things than you do in all this war and politics. and cra- It's all trivial. South Change Korea, your focus nor- to something nor- bigger. Ask the bigger questions. That's right. You right know, and then you can get over these other problems. That's right. And That's I will right. reference the pale blue dot. At the end of this episode. Okay, excellent. <laughs> the pale blue dot. I love it. Well, um, Carl was uh, is uh, uh, was born in Brooklyn, New York. He's a Brooklyn boy from 1934. Mm-hmm. He was uh, was from a Russian Jewish immigrant family. Mm-hmm. Um, his father was uh, a garment maker, garment worker. He was, um, I, I think, uh, from from everything that I've read, uh, you know, quite a prodigy in school. I mean, always did very well and. 
seemed to um, mm-hmm. receive all of his degrees fairly early on. Um, you know, he attended the University of Chicago. Well, I heard it said that his mother was a big influence on him. And yep. that, and then the way I heard it once put was that his Rachel m- Molly Gruber. <laughs> His mother worshipped the ground that he floated above. <laughs> like, he, was, he was that good, you know. Yeah. Well, well part of it is because she w- wasn't able to, uh, you know, really pursue her own intellectual endeavors because, you know, she was a woman and she had to raise the kids. And, oh, yeah. I'm and, sure and, it was and, very and, tough times. And, yeah. And, and depression and, coming from Russia. and Right. So and there just weren't that many opportunities for a woman in the 1930s. No, from Stalin to so, the, the American Depression. I mean, how how wonderful can that be? Yeah. Land of opportunity, but not much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Step up, but that's it. Yeah. Um, Sagan also lectured and did research at Har- Harvard University until 68. Um, then he moved to Cornell in New York, uh, became a full professor in 71, and he directed the Lab for Planetary Studies. He was also the associate director of the Center for Radio Physics and Space Research at Cornell. Cornell is is really, I think, what he you know the institute he's probably most associated with. Right, he was teaching there right up to his death. Right, right. He's def- definitely mm-hmm. um, Cornell alumni. He um, was involved with the American Space Program uh, right right from the very beginning, uh, you know, from Sputnik on, (laughs) uh, Carl was asked to, um, you know, brief the Apollo astronauts before their flight to the moon. Um, and it'd been an advisor. Can you imagine that to sitting down with this, you know, with Carl Sagan, with Carl Sagan and having him explain to you what it's going to be like to be in outer space, not just, Oh, it's going to be weightless, but here are some of the logistical things you're going to need to think about when you're on the moon. Right. And having someone who's already thought through these issues and, that's and right. how walking and how even you think about it on the space shuttle, manipulating this 2,000-pound satellite in space, how you have to be careful yeah. that you're not spinning it too fast so that you can maintain your own uh, you know, momentum so that you're sure. not – it's just mm-hmm. fascinating that they would sit down. I would love to be a fly on the wall in those discussions oh, to exactly. hear what to expect. And, and you heard about Buzz Aldrin talking about the neutrinos flashing – in his eyes. So mm-hmm. as he would close his eyes to sleep, there'd be these flashes of light mm-hmm. and it would be, you wouldn't get it here on earth, but you'd get it up there in space because mm-hmm. you're not shielded by the atmosphere. So wow. his eyes would just flash here and there when they would strike the back of his retina. And right. it was just amazing the things that you'd experience in space. That you could even perceive something like a neutrino. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, I, the one thing I'd like to say about Carl Sagan too, is that I think he, he was one of those people that really contributed to a complete reworking of the solar system in terms of, like, like for instance, one of the things that he's uh, very much known for in the field is the high surface temperatures of the planet Venus. I mean, right. Venus was seen in kind of this, you know, almost mystical kind of way, and he was saying, no, it's probably not. It's probably very warm, you know, very hot and absolutely miserable and... Lots yeah. of planetary storms and mm-hmm. and certainly, I mean, I think like lead is liquid at the at the surface. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a novel written by uh, Isaac Asimov, um, "Lucky Star and the Oceans of Venus." It was called or something like sure, that. Sure, uh, sure. It's about Lucky Star Space Ranger, and uh, he goes to Venus and and it's just all ocean and and it's now inhabited in the in this story and everything. But at the beginning of the book. Uh, it says, 
Well, no, now we know from scientific observation and, you know, whatever satellite it was that went to Venus that Venus can't be like this. But I hope you enjoy the story anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because I think Asimov, you know, liked to think his stories were accurate or at least could be possible. Yes, exactly. But, uh, so he, he, you know, put the little qualifier in there. And... I remember reading Asimov somewhere saying something about Sagan being one of the few minds that he could look up to. Right. Yeah. But Which I, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was... Yeah, that was more that, intelligent than he was. Yeah, that's yeah. the gist. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's um, very Caucasian of you to say anything. <laughs> Thanks, Ike. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm smart, but I'm so smart. <laughs> I'm just saying that this Carl Sagan guy... So, and, and a lot of the reports that he did for NASA were later popularized into a Time Life book called Planets, which I have to say, so I'm, you know, I'm at the grocery store, I'm checking out, and they have, you know, Time Life books, the 100 most important people of the 20th century, the 100 most important people, and who is, who are two of the people that are prominently displayed on the cover? Mother fucking Teresa and Thomas Elva goddamn oh, Edison. Oh, my God. Oh. I mean, have we not made our position clear? You know, Gandhi was People, on there, too, and I'm listening? not really done with Gandhi, are either. Are you even listening to this? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, wow. That's. I thought you were going to say... Nikola Tesla. Oh no, no. And Carl Sagan. No, 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 no. no. And Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and two, yeah, no. No, at least at least two, if not more, of the douchebags we have already covered. <sighs> Man. This is uh, Carl Sagan is like the Mr. Rogers of space. He really is in a yeah. lot of ways. I mean, he he made and you could always say, well, you know, to popularize space. I mean, certainly in the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon would look down on Carl Sagan for popularizing or downgrading, you know, science, but I think that bringing the importance and just the different perspective that science has to offer mm-hmm. for more than just the few who understand the complex mathematics right. <laughs> uh, is really an, a great, great contribution. Just to try to explain how big the universe is. I mean, right. it, it's, I don't know if, if, I don't have my mind wrapped around it yet, but you know, it is billions and billions of, you know, light years just to get across right. the thing. I remember when he's on or the Tonight Show, maybe, I, I saw yeah, all of his yeah. Tonight Show. Uh, appearances and he was he was going he, I think he was uh, showing the um, golden record that was going right. to go out and um, he had white gloves on and he was showing it and it's so funny I mean when you think of it now because it was just this you know kind of looked like a gold record that you'd get for selling yeah, a million yeah. albums or something mm-hmm. but here it was like the sounds of earth and instructions how to play the latest technology <laughs> yeah no, no I heard once that could have been a the, gold eight track they think they actually sent up uh Elvis's uh, Heartbreak Hotel, the gold record by mistake. <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> you know, they. Uh, no. it started with the Pioneer project that he first had the idea. He only had three weeks to pull together. This idea was he wanted to include a message. If we were going right. to send a satellite into space, he suggested to NASA, let's include a message on that satellite, and it will say something about who we are. It'll be an artifact that can go into space and be found, hopefully not by Klingons like in the movies. Yeah, right. But Please you know, don't hurt us. <laughs> you know, Stephen Hawking's not down with yeah, that. Yeah, we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. But the Pioneer plaque was this illustration of a man and a woman, and yeah. he, he tried to make them not Caucasian totally, but it, it's right. it's so it's such a 
piece of its time, you know. Right. The guy so, kind of looked like Doc Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. So this was 1972 <laughs> that it came out. So right. yeah, yeah. They they allowed the Doc Manhattan, but they didn't put the Virginia on the woman. No, you can see the guy's junk, but yeah, the guy's junk is oh. okay. But the woman's non-junk, no, missing no, JJ. No, no. Well, right now the aliens are thinking about. How the heck can they uh, procreate? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's something they left off. No, there was this idea that they were thinking about having the man and the woman hold hands. And this is so 1970s. But then they worried that maybe an alien would think it was one being. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) So you can tell he was thinking about all this stuff. Sure, sure. And he's got the man waving his arm to show that the arm will move. But then it's so sexist. The man is the one waving. Right. The woman's slightly smaller. Talk to the taller one with the junk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, But they were afraid to add the vagina because... Because they were they were afraid of censorship at NASA, they were afraid that if they went that extra step, then they would totally get rejected, and then it wouldn't go on the on the wow. spacecraft. So she goes out looking like Barbie. Yeah, they had drawn it, but then they Barbied it out. <laughs> so they then they didn't include just, it. Oh God! But if you look at it, there's a there's this series of symbols on it, which has this like pattern of of numbers that go out. They gave this plaque to scientists. Well, and said, they're, they're pulsars. Aren't what do they? you make of this? Well, it's the relative position of the sun to the center of the galaxy with the pulsars, the 14 of them marking... The, the pulsars as the... Right. Yeah. Right. Reference so, points. Well, and, and if you're from space, I don't know... <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what, going to make what, any What's sense. your frame of reference? You know, which yeah. galaxy are we in here? But uh, the idea was that you could calculate it and you could figure it out. Most scientists couldn't make 100% sense out of this plaque. Right. But the idea was what was important, that a it message would be in a, bottle. a message in a bottle sent out. Yeah. yeah. And this is what he previously did... From the telescope where they sent out that first message where they beamed it from the, what is the name of the telescope? Arecibo? Yeah, the Arecibo telescope. In Puerto Rico, it's it's built around or on top of, I guess, a kind of a natural valley. And so the it's not movable, obviously, but it's it's probably the biggest, I would think, still the biggest radio telescope on the planet. Yeah. And they they use it to beam out. A, instead of just you know receiving all the time, they use it to send out this very strong signal. Which I think they showed the bitmap of it, and you know it shows like a DNA helix and right. It's know, like a really nice ASCII Atari yeah, kind of a looking man thing. With his junk but and, yeah. it, it's a fixed dish, but then they can move the collector around right. to, to receive signals from different parts of the sky. It's, it's actually really interesting. Yeah. I well, it's like that new space telescope they're going to put out and park behind the moon. Yeah, no, that'd be cool. Yeah. What was funny about this signal is they aimed it at a nearby galaxy, but. By the time the signal actually gets there, the galaxy won't be there anymore. Right. So, yeah. Wow. Maybe there's a miscalculation. But really, it was meant just as a symbolic gesture, kind of like the Pioneer drawing. But, I mean, you think of the Pioneer drawing, he only had three weeks to try to throw something together that he could get approval for. And I think they overestimated the disapproval they would get on what they put on the Pioneer. Right. And he got a lot more time to think about the, this golden record that went on Voyager. Right. Which mm-hmm. you can go to YouTube right now. Maybe we'll throw up the YouTube link on our website and you can listen to what it is. It's a lot of international messages about, mm-hmm. you know, different voices from Earth and a lot of different, a lot of information. It's interesting how uh, Voyager made it into a couple of movies, at least a couple of movies. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously Star Trek, The Motionless mm-hmm. Picture. Yeah. Feeger, uh, Feeger you know, <laughs> wants to go home. Yeah, well, I don't give a shit what Feeger wants. So, um, and then it was like a loose connection. It was, oh, come on, right? And like, I think a review of the Times said, uh, it's the usual thing. The Enterprise goes out and meets uh, meets God, and it's either a child or a computer or both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, and then in uh, Starman with uh, Jeff Bridges, uh, they show uh, Voyager going into you know. 
wherever his home planet is. And he, when he lands on earth and he's trying to communicate to people, he's just like throwing back random bits <laughs> from the record, you know, like she's saying, well, are you okay? Where are you from? I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> it's like, what? Did it... I'm not sure, but did, did independence day have a, a Voyager clip right at the beginning boy i don't remember well, that voyager sure. was that ran into star trek where the klingons were doing target practice with it i think that mm-hmm. was in 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 an early star trek i'm not sure which movie it was in but mm. yeah they just blew it out of the sky as target practice you guys didn't see that one <laughs> no i clearly remember that one maybe it was romulan uh, someone can email and tell us but yeah yeah someone out there yeah, yeah. i know and you know I, who you are i know some of our listeners <laughs> just know this and they're yelling at their ipods right now well, clearly that was episode 39 let's just start trek posers <laughs> i'll be writing my disapproval momentarily <laughs> the internet i can't will believe be you guys aware. didn't know that one i'll be on the forums momentarily i used to listen to you now i refuse to <laughs> i will never listen to you again <laughs> But Voyager was launched in, like, what, 77? Yes. So, you know, what's great about Voyager, and this is where Carl Sagan, this is where his legacy kind of lies. If you if you think about this, it was launched in 1977. Voyager 2 was launched shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically identical. They both got the golden record on them. Right. I've got a golden ticket. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the Voyager 1 right now is currently 10.518 billion miles from the sun. So oh. there, there were some discrepancies, and it's still they're still receiving signals from it. It's, was, on, it's outside of the solar system. Well, right, it's past the termination. None of the Pluto's been cut. <laughs> well, they actually <laughs> they call it the termination shock, right. uh, but the that probably passed the termination shock around two thousand three or two thousand four. There was some discrepancy, but now everyone can say, okay, fine, it's yeah. past the termination shock, and it's now in the helio sheath mm-hmm. of the. Of the solar system, so will it be getting closer to the Oort cloud? <laughs> closer to the Oort cloud, but uh, it it is uh, the farthest artifact of humanity and humanity's existence from the Earth in in forever. Right. So when Carl Sagan asked, except for the Mayan spaceships, right? <laughs> yes, right, yes. yeah, and yes. they'll come back. I hope you guys yeah. have been watching Ancient Astronauts the series because I have. No. <laughs> <laughs> but but when Carl Sagan and this was this was also great. Like he suggested to NASA, hey, you know what'd be really cool is if we had the Voyager just turn a little bit and then take a picture of the Earth. Right. He probably said it like, if we have it turn a little bit and take a picture of the Earth. Yes. Here in our spaceship of the imagination. In our spaceship. (laughs) So when the pale blue dot picture was taken, this this picture of the Earth from as far away as any picture of Earth has ever been taken was thirty eight thousand. It was flying at 38,100 miles per hour, and it was 3.8 billion miles away from the Earth. Wow. And that was taken uh, May 11th, 1996. That's so, great. Super cool. Very cool. Wow. I mean, a lot of people said that, you know, that was one of uh, the biggest things to come out of, uh, of course, the oh. obviously faked Apollo missions with, <laughs> right. you know, the, the, you know, pictures of the <laughs> Earth and that, you know, you, you start to get a planetary perspective instead of it's like, no, I'm in my geopolitical unit. No, yeah. I'm in mine. You shut up. Yeah, yeah, no, I misspoke. The the picture was taken earlier. The speech that Carl Sagan gave at commencement was May eleventh, nineteen ninety six, and I'll play it uh, a, re- a Carl Sagan recorded version of it at the end of the episode, so you can hear his ruminations about the importance of that picture mm-hmm. uh, to 
all of humanity and, and his he's such an eloquent speaker and Very. a philosophical thinker and you really have to be to be thinking about things beyond this global earth-centric view to look beyond the earth to the beyond the solar system beyond the galaxy to the actual cosmos and that's mm -hmm. really where he was such a great guy and you know this was always kind of hidden from his legacy because he insisted no one know about this but right. back in the 60s he wrote a piece called what marijuana reconsidered mm. as Mr X as Mr X yeah and i don't want to you know get into the whole well pot's bad pot's good but he was a marijuana advocate he was a marijuana advocate and he was smoking marijuana he liked marijuana he wasn't a drug addict or anything but he wrote this piece that said how he felt marijuana enhanced his perceptions of the universe. Right. And it was really an eloquently written, very Carl Sagan-y piece, as if he wrote it while he was smoking some marijuana or something. Possibly. We don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and But there are stories that just abound about him as a a guy who liked to smoke and a guy who liked to drink. And yeah, sure. there's excellent. A, there's stories of pizza delivery guys getting invited in and you can find those on the internet, but I'm not going to corroborate them. His wow. third wife was on the board for Normal as well, who helped... Oh produced the uh, the Cosmos series and, and wrote parts of novels that he'd worked on. So, you know, it's kind of funny because when you watch uh, the Cosmos series and, and you listen to him talk, you, you don't imagine him doing anything like that. You just think he's a professor that works on his science and right. that's it, you know. That's he, kept kind of he kept an open mind, and I, I think that's yeah. the best thing you can say is mm -hmm. that, hey— mm -hmm. It's not, not hurting anybody. <laughs> well, that's the thing about, you know, I don't like to get into personal biographies too much unless right. the person's passed away and we can, you know, openly discuss them. And he, you know, allowed this to be released after his death anyway. Right. So he released the identity that that was actually him that wrote Well, that. I don't I don't think that says anything negative about him, really. I mean, it's not like, you know, he was drinking heroin out of a fire right. hose like Nikki Six from Motley Crue or anything. But I think anyone yeah. who would think that might be a little older and be in that mentality because that's why he kept it a secret because you know in the 40s 50s 60s i guess it's no big secret that college professors smoked pot in the 60s yeah but you, yeah but you couldn't talk about it you know you could do it no. but you would keep that on the down low yeah. and right yeah and, and he wasn't the only one i mean it was no it was the 60s mm -hmm. not by any means i'm so, sure yeah. and but. he's he's well known also as a man of his generation that yeah, I don't know the Mad Men mentality where he, the guy never did a single dish in his life, basically. <laughs> and he might have talked the talk, but yeah, he he really didn't walk the walk in his home life. But sure, yeah, interesting very, character. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, beyond uh, kind of redoing our our image of uh, the planet Venus, he was also among the first to uh, theorize that uh, Titan, one of Saturn's moons, might uh, possess a liquid ocean at its surface, and Europa because of its uh, irregular orbit, that it would actually be uh, warming the liquid underneath, and that, yes, there would be ice that would protect it from space, but that it you know, wasn't boiling away. Yeah, mm -hmm. that the pressures from the planet would be causing this compression and expansion that would be heating the inner liquid core of Europa mm -hmm. is a very big idea, especially because water-based life is so much a key ingredient to life on Earth. So if there's a warm right. core on Europa... I mean, this caused all the speculation that leads up to 2010, you know. Right, the, right. And, and when you Something wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and if, if you have organic compounds in a liquid environment, you, you, the theory is that life can be stimulated. There could be underwater vents that um, 
heat it, heat it, and there you know might be enough organic compounds. You know, thankfully, thankfully BP's not drilling there. Yeah, you know, this is one of the places I've always said I really can't wait to get there, and I would probably want BP on the first ship to Europa because it's a good mile or so to get through that crust. Right. You know, it would be <laughs> damnable government difficult. regulation. Yeah, we have to go to Europa. <laughs> We've got to go to Europa Son to find the water. Right. Plus, on these long miss- <laughs> missions, it's nice to have some astronauts that would be expendable. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, some stuff happened. But that's amazing that he was such a scientist that he helped figure out, you know, the methane levels on Titan. And, and there are recent studies coming out that there are depreciating levels of, you know, hydrogen on the outer atmosphere, more on the outer atmosphere than on the lower atmospheres, mm-hmm. which leads to the question of, well, why is it depleting as you get closer to the surface? So right. there's a lot of science that can still be done. And he was speculating on methane-based life as well. So mm-hmm. very exciting. Well, and he was also one of the first to say that the color variations on Mars surface were not, you know, seasonal or anything, that they were just shifts in surface caused by very severe windstorms. There might be organic compounds in various layers of uh, Jupiter because, you know, it's very dense and probably has a metallic core, but it's just a lot of, I mean, like they said in 2010, I mean, it's just this far from becoming a... A star, there's enough mass there that... Yeah, and it's a lot of atmosphere. And I think one of the things that um, always interested me was the, the Cosmos series, because he had he had based it on uh, Jacob uh, Bronowski's The Ascent of Man, which I, I also really enjoyed mm-hmm. that series. And you, you don't really see it on in rerun or anything on Cosmos either, as, as far as that goes. It was on not too long ago on a particular cable channel. I, I don't recall which one it is, but I they, they played a few of them. It might have been the Science Channel, actually, now that I think of it. And the Cosmos series is really fascinating because it just... Every episode goes into a different topic, and of course, he has a spaceship in the imagination where he's kind of walking around and saying, oh, yeah. "You know, this is would be a perspective." And it, everything with him was about perspective. Mm-hmm. That you can look at it this mm-hmm. way and think that the whole universe revolves around you, but in fact, you know, right? You know, and Cosmos only went thirteen episodes, and mm-hmm. I found out today because I'd been trying to get a hold of these because I wanted to revisit them and right. go through them again because I have vague memories of some of the episodes. I have stronger mm-hmm. memories of bits, and on YouTube I've seen bits and pieces again. But I found out today that they're on Hulu, like Hulu actually has oh. them, and wow. they have the most cool. annoying, horrible ads you've ever seen because oh, it goes. No. On this blue Klondike bar, I want a Klondike bar. Blue, blue, blue. Twenty second Klondike bar. Planet in the sky. <laughs> it just goes. Oh, no. it, it's just wrong. It's totally wrong because he did it for you know PBS. Basically, it's supposed to be a sure. free thing, but that's right. Yeah, and he was as I mentioned earlier, he was on the uh, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson on many many occasions. Mm-hmm. And he would always come out and he'd talk about things. Like I say, when he had the white gloves and he was holding up the golden record, he was talking about. And said, "Well, Johnny." Space is very vast and empty. That's why we call it space. <laughs> and everyone was like laughing and Johnny and she was saying, you know, thanks for really uh breaking that down for us, Carl. <laughs> you know, it's great because they were they were really good friends. And mm-hmm. Johnny Carson was himself a amateur astronomer and yes. he really wanted to get the public's knowledge up a little bit. You know, back in the day these talk shows used to have scientists on right. where they would get into discussions and th- that way the the Daily Show correspondent, or you know, the Johnny Carson person, could interact and show that they're going to have this intelligent discussion that they care about these things and they're curious about these things. Right. Riff a little bit, but lately, a lot of them they they tend to just destroy them. And 
Oh, oh, they don't. They're just in their academic world. And it's not a conversation anymore. You don't see people like that. Neil deGrasse DeGrasse Tyson shows up on The Daily Show every now and then. Mm -hmm. So you're getting this kind of watered down version of it. And I think you see Brian Cox do that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I just really miss that because he seemed to be on The Tonight Show often. We, We as a society need to embrace science more. Science, <laughs> history, really just about anything that we yeah. don't, don't yeah. do, anything that we don't do now. Yeah, what knowledge. about Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan? Yeah, so what is Lindsay doing? I'm going to TMZ right now. I'm very concerned. Oh, there's another dead white girl in Aruba. Oh. I need to know everything I can about that. Ugh. I don't yeah. care. Okay, sorry, sorry. Didn't mean to. Didn't mean to go on that. <laughs> the, the, bitterness is the, endless. The Cosmo episodes I, I found really enlightening. He would. He, he, it, he wouldn't just talk about space and everything, but he'd go back with the historical perspective. Yes. It's like a humanitarian yeah. lesson, you know? Yeah, and, and sometimes you don't know what this has to do with anything. He'd go on some story in right. history, and then he'd come right out and like, oh, yeah. that's how it you all ties together. You knew if you together. had this guy for a class yeah. that you would never miss that class. Yeah. No kidding. Exactly. You know, you know, he won the prize for the Dragons of Eden. Yes. Uh, was that the Pulitzer Prize winning mm-hmm. work? And that contained the cosmic calendar. And that cosmic calendar kind of got, that was 1978. Mm-hmm. And that got translated into the Cosmos episode. And I like that concept. I think it's just fascinating because what he would do is take the estimated 15 billion year history of the universe mm-hmm. and break it down to a 12 month calendar and say, you know, in January, this happened. In February, this happened. And and explore those issues and, until he got to late December in the evening of the 31st. And <laughs> the last 30 seconds or 40 seconds is where human recorded history begins <laughs> up to right now. And it's just, it, it brings you to this point where you're like, yeah. yeah. Well, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Kind, you, kind you of know, like re- the intro to the Big Bang Theory. Really, if the humans can make it a whole month or yeah. even a whole week, we're doing really well. Exactly. Yeah. And we've made it a good 30, 40 seconds. But <laughs> yeah. the Viking princess and I watched the first episode together, mm-hmm. and she's now nine. And honestly, I just think she's not quite there yet. I think that, you know, if your child's 10 or 11, you you could maybe get them. I'm going to keep pushing it. I'm not going to make her watch Carl Sagan. Right, right. I want her to appreciate it. But uh, I could tell that, that that was a baffling logistical thing to try to understand oh, it is. This, this translation to the mm-hmm. cosmic year, to the 15 billion age of the universe. And she's probably even like, well, what was before that then? You know. Well, I think that you probably have to work hard for that perspective in the best of times. But mm-hmm. in today's naval contemplation... Um, and electronic mm-hmm. uh, right. cutoff, I think that you pretty much, it's it's even harder still. She's still at the Bill yeah. Nye the Science Guy level, which so am I. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love the Bill, Bill Nye. Nye the Science Guy level. I love it. Uh, and it's frenetic and fast. But I think that there were parts of the complex thought that going in and coming oh, out sure. of Carl Sagan that mm-hmm. just, it, it was too much for her. So I was kind of disappointed. I really wanted to have her get it right away, but oh, I'll just keep revisiting it yeah, here and there I, as we I go haven't along. got a chance to... Uh, have my son watch it yet but he is interested in space and that sort of thing oh very cool and so i i don't know if it's going to be interesting enough for him or not well i mean for me it was always um it always came down to like one book or Mm -hmm. something that i read that just 
you know, took me to a very different perceptual level. And then from there on, it was like, okay, I want to find out about this and I want to find out about that. And I think that's probably what it is too. Yeah. I mean, now it might be a documentary or a movie or mm. something. And if it gets you to, to, to go to that extra step, it was, is interesting. Yet another sidebar, but I saw a preview for, um, the Pentagon papers right. that they're coming out. I think we talked about that actually some time ago. And um, mm -hmm. a book that always really influenced me early on was George Orwell's 1984. And the next book I read after that was the Pentagon Papers. And that that book was just so incredible in that it just Kind of takes... like just reading the same book twice. <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, it kind of was. Yeah. yeah, War is Peace, Ignorance is Strength, Freedom is Slavery. Yeah. yeah. It's like, okay, and here's what President Johnson said, <laughs> and here's what he said here. <laughs> it, it was really amazing. And, well, of course, yeah. uh, Howard Zinn was involved with that, too, is, yeah. is editing all that uh, raw intelligence down. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they had clips of Nixon going, oh, you know, Daniel Ellsberg has been giving aid and comfort to the enemy. You know, but but again... That's an amazing story. Oh, it's yeah. a very yeah. amazing story. But but again, it's you, there's usually just this one moment where it kind of kicks you into looking at something in a very different way. And mm -hmm. like I say, that's what Carl was definitely all about. You know, I think that I'll sit her down and watch episode 12 of Cosmos, which is the yeah. Encyclopedia Galactica episode, yeah. which is really fun for someone who loves codes and language. And, and I do. And mm -hmm. I speak different languages. And I like... To understand Swahili and I like to look into as a code breaker how these languages phonetically are structured and sure. and that whole episode he did a similar thing where he jumps into you know how hieroglyphics were understood eventually by the Europeans right. with Fourier and this child who who eventually became this great scientist who f helped figure that out but then he jumps right to the Drake equation right and then he takes you into the calculation that you would make in order to figure out how many possible technological societies are alive in the galaxy. Right. Which is sometimes wrongfully called the Sagan equation. It's, you know, Frank Drake was the one who came up with it in 1961 and he mm -hmm. brought it to this Green Bank meeting. And that is the, the equation where you take the Milky Way galaxy basically and you estimate, you know, how many stars are in the galaxy and then you times that by uh, how many of those stars have you know, how many planets are around each star mm -hmm. times how many of those planets are going to be able to support human life times a fraction of those that actually do create human life times right. a fraction of those that actually create technological life. Stuff. And it's just yeah. a straight line calculation. It's very right. simple. And then, and then this is an amazing part of the Cosmos episode is that he then, you can tell that he's very, very concerned about disarmament and the cold war and america and the soviet union because the last part of the equation is how long before they destroy themselves <laughs> right yeah i mean he yeah. was actually the one of uh, the first to to bring out the aspect of the model of nuclear winter mm -hmm. that no one's walking away from this exchange if you think this is going to be a tactical exchange mm -hmm. right. it's not it's going to end everything just as as that uh, meteor that wiped out the, um, the dinosaurs, dinosaurs mm -hmm. you know, did the same thing. And also, yes, he was like, well, why aren't, how come we have all our telescopes aimed and, and we've sent out messages and even when we don't intend to, you know, our TV and radio is going out, how come no one's answered? And, mm -hmm. and that was one of the things he put forward was, well, maybe intelligent life doesn't last. Right. You know, right. maybe it's not this great thing. Maybe that, it's not that intelligent. Yeah, right. it's not that intelligent. That maybe they don't survive a certain technological level. They just, you know, yep. 
destroy themselves through ecological disaster or technical disaster? Yeah, I mean, or? how many science fiction movies focus on the premise of the thing that expands like itself, Flowers for Ad- Algernon, where you become so advanced that you just can't deal with it anymore? Right. You know, and, right. and as a cultural uh, problem, you all of a sudden have these weapons in your hand that are just far beyond your comprehension or ability to control them anymore. That's right. I mean, we're on that precipice every day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, the Gulf of Mexico is filling with oil as we speak. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And there's people that theorized how that could become a, uh, you know, a life-killing, planet-killing event. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, right. they're alarmist and exaggerating, but you know, you know, the theory's hope. there. Yeah. You know, he wrote in, it was 1985, conveniently, very close to 1984, that he wrote The Cold in the Dark, The World After Nuclear War. Right. And, you know, I was thinking about this as I watched The Road. <laughs> oh, you know. I, oh, my God. I read the book and I could not bring myself to watch the movie. I love Viggo Mortensen, but I just, I could not make that jump. I could not make myself read the book, so I watched the movie. Oh, the book was. <laughs> like, seriously, I could not bring myself to read that. I actually looked at it. I read the first few pages in the bookstore and I put it back down. I said, I cannot read this. Yeah. But, you know, maybe I can handle watching it. But. I bet you not. No, I I, <laughs> I wrote that it was. I, I think I put it on the Twitter feed that this was not a uh, laugh riot. No, uh, no. Film of the week. Yeah, it was very, very, very dark. And I watched it mainly out of my post-apocalyptic curiosity because right. when we were talking about doing an episode on post-apocalypse cinema, which we did, the road wasn't out yet. We couldn't even see it in theaters, but no. we went ahead with our show. And then I I figured oh, I should catch up with this and see how this fits into the right you know the epoch or whatever and wow it was it was wonderful thought provoking mm-hmm. chilling but just cut me to the quick as far as how horrendous it really was and and how well, it's just how him quickly. and this boy trying to mm-hmm. you know move across the country and of course the very thin veneer of civilization has yeah. been completely and utterly torn away <laughs> it's amazing how thin that veneer seems <laughs> oh, when yeah. you're watching something like that it's always like that when we when we watch these things uh, even back to Mad Max, but but this was very much, I guess it was seven or maybe ten years later. So you're pretty much the society's gone to tribalism, cannibalism, because in this unique form of apocalypse, which you don't really understand why, which is also another great, chilling, creepy part of the film. There's no animals to eat. There's no birds. There's no, no. nothing. So people are of course reduced to eating each other, which I think is Cormac McCarthy's. Analogy. He really wanted to bring it down to the worst case scenario. That's right. And, and how little it would take to get there. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and what what we would be doing if we were there. Oh yeah. I mean yeah. The, the the people that that he runs. I mean just the sheer bleakness of mm-hmm. that story, and then the the people that he runs across in that world are just animals. Mm-hmm. You know that you could say, well, people you know act in a desperate way to survive, but it's it's something beyond that. Really, mm-hmm. it's almost like. Um, he was trying to say it was almost like that little family unit was an anachronism, mm-hmm. you know, and right. that they didn't really even belong. And they didn't belong to each other either because one was from before and one was from after. Right. And you can see how that plays out through the film that that, that this just cannot it can't maintain the system that they've oh, created yeah. and it has to go somewhere. The book very much impressed me because it was so spare. 
Mm-hmm. It was very minimal. It like Orwell in that the story is much more important than the characters. But uh, Cormac McCarthy actually made you care about the characters, even though you really just didn't know that much about them. I mean, and like I say, in the book, it's even more drawn out. Yeah, and Viggo Mortensen can do no wrong. And the child oh, yeah. actor they got to portray the boy, yeah, was a brilliant acting choice. And and then you have. Um, the old man who shows up, which is one of my favorite character actors. And off the top of my head now, I can't think of his name, but brilliant character actor. Well, you get so involved in that movie that you don't even, you know, a lot of times in movies, you look at somebody and you go, Oh, that's so-and-so. You don't even recognize Guy Pierce in this. You know, Guy Pierce shows up, you barely recognize him. So great, great film, but dark, dark. I actually had to stay up and watch comedies after that because it's hard to get happy. (laughs) I I couldn't. I, I picture Cormac McCarthy does not have, a rainbow unicorn poster. No, no. I no. think we might need to send him one. That's right. Well, after Mrs. Sputnik's strong reaction to No Country for Old Men, I didn't dare bring home the road. I mean, that I one... did, but I said nope. It's just for me. I mean, I mean, all I got to say is No Country for Old Men now, and that's that pretty much just rewinds the tape. Best so. film of the decade. But well, I would agree, but. You know, it's it, not to mention a serious man. The Coen brothers are a fantastic directing team. Right. But a serious man but was you, brilliant. When you watch when you watch a Coen brothers movie, you have to sit down with the idea that this is a Coen brothers movie and life is random. Life is hard. And kind of like Tank Riot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's it's not oh, it's not pleasant and it's not going to end in the classic Hollywood way. And I'm totally fine with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite honestly, I this this summer has been just so bare of anything that even vaguely wants you know pulls me to the theater or anything else. I'm just right, like, right. Me neither. Hey, Burno to start. Did you watch it? I've I've recorded it. Oh, okay. I haven't gotten to it yet. It is, <laughs> it is recorded. It is recorded. Well, the new one's on tonight. So yeah, I know that. That means I'll oh. have twice the fun. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say Fee has a new look. That's all I'm gonna say. Nice. Okay, then. <laughs> Back to Carl. You know, you, you mentioned before, um, well, also when he was talking about environmental damage uh, in 1991 when they had the Kuwaiti oil fires, when uh, mm-hmm. Hussein lit all the right. the Kuwaiti oil uh, sites, he was talking about how just that could disrupt the biosphere mm-hmm. to, to a very irreparable yeah. point. So I mean, I think he was he was he was there with the environmental message and had good science to back it right. up. Right, but what was what yeah. was great about that is when it didn't actually happen because you couldn't there wasn't enough propellant to actually get that get it, get it into high the enough. stratosphere right. so yeah. that it would block things out. He said, "Oh, I was wrong." Yeah, and, he admits he was wow. wrong. Wow. <laughs> Rather yeah. than trying to explain how he's he was right all the time to dig Sarah in, Sarah Palin. That's right. And and this is something about Carl Sagan that I really love is. We've mentioned this back when we were talking about Scooby-Doo and this whole skepticism angle is right. he is a true skeptic. And, right. and he has always said as a and I'm a skeptic myself. And uh, we've had listeners write in and ask if we are aware of people like James Randi and the Tam and and mm-hmm. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Of course, we're aware of those uh, things. And I'm a huge fan of Penn and Teller, Penn Gillette. I'm not as libertarian as he is, but, you know. Right. He's, he's very libertarian. He's very skeptical as well. And, yeah. and so is Carl Sagan. And I really love that about him. And and one of his sayings, which is another derivative saying from other people, is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to claim something truly extraordinary, we're going to have to 
prove it. Speaking of environmental impact and and how things can be reduced, like you know how how the right is constantly saying that you know global warming is is merely a theory, like evolution is a theory, mm-hmm. and so that somehow makes it you know unproven. Well, and... gravity is a theory, yeah, right, you know, exactly. But just <laughs> well, trying to defy it. That's one thing I liked about the Cosmos series. Oh, he did do that when he was talking about evolution. He he right out. He said it's real. No, he said evolution is a fact. Is a fact. Yeah, he did something like that. But you don't right. hear that anymore. Right. No. Yeah. No. That, that message is very much and, suppressed. And he explained the evidence. And I mean, yeah, of course it's a fact. I mean, yeah. duh. I mean, you can just take... Well, and what was interesting, what, what, this I suppose is a little bit of a sidebar, but after this, I, I definitely want to get into uh, Carl Sagan and religion and his, his many mm-hmm. of his personal beliefs, because there's a quote here that I think is really worth sharing with the listeners but i was reading this article about saying that you know the right was saying well global warming's a theory however some of these uh ex wall street brokers are out there either either doing this for themselves or working in conjunction with other governments that as the world warms and northern latitudes which normally didn't produce as much food because the climate was colder and didn't have the the plants the, don't grow in three feet of snow, right? Exactly yeah. that. We've got pineapples up here in Scotty Nation, <laughs> right? <laughs> so even even when the right is saying, "Oh well, this is all just a theory," you've got these hyper disaster capitalists going out and buying millions of acres of land at a shot for India, China, Saudi Arabia, or just for themselves. So when the coming food crisis comes, because the usual areas aren't producing, and Kazakhstan or Sudan or mm-hmm. some of these other areas, they've already got the land bought up. And I just thought, my God, we need a new word that goes beyond hypocrisy. <laughs> I mean, that's just fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but getting back to, to Carl Sagan, he was frequently asked, and, and he did write about uh, about his religious views and, and the relationship between religion and science, the concept of God. Anyways, he has this quote that I, I think is, is, is well worth it. Some people think God is an outsized, light-skinned male with a long white beard sitting on a throne somewhere up in the sky, busily tallying the fall of every sparrow. Others, for example, Baruch, Spinoza, and Albert Einstein, considered God to be essentially the sum total of the physical laws which describe the universe. I do not know of any compelling evidence for anthropomorphic patriarchs controlling human destiny from some hidden celestial vantage point, but it would be madness to deny the existence of physical laws. Wow. Yeah. But, but but Carl Sagan himself denied that he was an atheist. When really pressed, he said he was uh, an agnostic. He said, uh, an atheist has to know a lot more than I know. Yeah, but That's you know, right. Atheism is kind of a fundamentalist No, it is not. View. No, it, can it be, is though. not. It yeah, can be, though. It can be, yeah. No, I, I think—here's I, my interpretation. I think that in the times that Carl Sagan was living—we're talking, like, probably when he said this 10 years ago or so— Oh, easily. You know, before he died, mm-hmm. that that it was not as open to say you were atheistic, which just means without religion. And that means you haven't shown me enough proof yet that there really is a religion or mm-hmm. there really is a God that I should be believing in. And I think that the term that was used as an interim term was agnostic. Right. And I think a lot of people get hung up on that idea of I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist. And, and right. if you're saying you're an atheist, that means... I don't believe, and I will never believe, and you can never convince me to believe. Right. I'm an atheist. If God himself comes down here and says, hey, Victor, I'm real. I'm here. Mm-hmm. Here's some proof. How about some fish? Let's give you some wine. Oh, look, it's water. Oh, look, it's wine. Oh, <laughs> water. Oh, wine. Wine, eat water, wine. You know, then I'll believe. You know, if there's some proof, if some evidence shows up, I will believe. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean I'm 
atheistic always. It means that that's what I am right now, but right. I'm open to I'm open to whatever happens in the universe. I think that's what Carl Sagan right. was saying as well. I think, but I think you're right. There is a very uh, the the terms atheist and agnostic are are very difficult, and I don't think very well understood. Right. right. I think agnostic is always looked to be as like atheist light. Yeah. Or, and, and there's a lot of lot of words in the language that do vary depending on definitions. So mm -hmm. I think in some in in some definitions, atheists can be described as fundamentalist and extreme. But but I, the, I, but then if you define it other ways. It's not just as Victor explained it, right? But I think if so, you're talking about Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, those people are extremely in your face about their atheism, but they're not extremely unbending in their beliefs. Like this is not a faith; this is a belief that is held from proofs. And so, right. even though they're in your face and annoying, or in your face and unwavering. I think that's still scientifically based. There was there was a Cosmos episode where Carl Sagan spoke to this at one point, and I wish I could remember the exact quote because I am kind of like reaching back many years to remember this. But he said something along the lines of, um, you know, he was talking about human history is that during the darkness, uh, the the many years of the darkness of ignorance, all we've had is the very flickering, guttering light of rational rationality to mm -hmm. to be able to make sense of it and to move forward meaning that mm -hmm. uh you know we we we've had century after century after century of fanaticism and killing for the sake of killing and exclusion for the sake of exclusion and all the only thing that has moved us forward is is those that that small group of people that believe that rationalism and the scientific method and trying to find out why something might appear to be this but in fact is this has moved us forward and has made life yeah. more worth living but but not just because you can make some new gadget from it mm -hmm. but the fact that it's changed perception of of how people live their lives and how they're attached to their own planet. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the important thing. Again, perspective. Right. You know, in context. And you know, I like to say, I wish I could remember the quote more exactly because he said it so beautifully. Yeah. But um I mm -hmm. I think I think I think it that the 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 point of view that you brought up is exactly what Carl Sagan did believe in fact was that yeah, I'll stay open to and it's kind of like I am with UFOs until I see one with Something waving from the window. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm yeah. really not down with. Well, it. and he it was needs... down with UFOs. He really was excited about he UFOs. He wanted to look into yeah, UFOs. Exactly. Yeah. And and this is where he his... thought it was worthy of study. Exactly. And, and just like when he went into the hieroglyphics analogy, his idea was that too many people had jumped in and said crazy claims about the right. hieroglyphics that real scientists were they would run away from it because they didn't feel like they should be tackling the issue. Um, but some brave scientists did and came up with real uh, mm -hmm. understanding of these hieroglyphics. Same with UFOs. He felt like it was worthy of speculation, but people shouldn't be driven away from it because of, right. you know, and, and his debunking of the, what is that famous Barney and 
I forget the the couple that was abducted and then under hypnosis. Oh, oh yeah, came up yeah. with this idea. Oh, under hypnosis, there's your first clue right hypnosis there. Hypnosis is always the worst. You know, it's like <laughs> hypnotherapy the, showed me UFO abduction, <laughs> past lives therapy. I mean, they were very interested in my sphincters. <laughs> I think yeah, I think Axel Rose actually <laughs> underwent uh, past lives therapy, and it's like you know what? Regardless of what you were in a past life, you're a horse's ass now. So maybe we ought to bring the focus forward. <laughs> I would love someone to go to a past life regression and find out. Oh, you were a ditch digger. Then a ditch digger, then a ditch digger. Yeah, exactly. It's always like I was the king of Persia, and it's like I don't it's think like, so. How many? Everyone was the king of Persia, apparently. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal was. The yeah. Oh God. Of Persia. But, uh, so so we had we had uh, two two of our um, student workers. I was over there, and they were all very secretive, and they were, and I went over there to, and they, and they were watching uh, Prince of Persia you know, on, on the computer and everything. And they, and they were like really pleased with themselves that they were able to get this, you know, it's in the theaters, but I'm watching it right here. And I was just thinking, wow, you guys really spent a lot of technical effort to watch a softcore gay, more <laughs> gay porn film. <laughs> There's women in it. And I said, but why am I looking at Jake Gyllenhaal's cheese shredder abs right now? You should tell them to download the Hurt Locker next. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, could you find something? Because they're tracking and they're busting people for downloading the Hurt Locker right now. Now. Oh yeah, I think that's funny that the theater is like they're hmm. they've now released a, a list of IPs for people they've busted. And yeah, it's the torrent lockdown is back on. Yeah, so we want our money. No more Napster. They want our yeah. <laughs> they want our jabs. <laughs> they took our jab. They took our jab. They took our jab. Well, I mean, Carl Sagan was uh, he he actually worked with uh, Jacques Vallée way back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, when Project Blue Book was still going on, which I thought oh, was yeah. fascinating. Of course, you probably remember him from he was in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, mm -hmm. which again is a movie that you do yeah. not see anymore. Where it was this very positive uh, yeah. view of aliens and alien contact, whereas uh, you know, of course, now we have you know Tiny Stephen Hawking saying I do. I don't believe that we should contact aliens. <laughs> All right, well let's uh, we, let's air out on that then. Have we really talked about this on the podcast yet? Like I feel like well, well Sagan said we should, right? I, we're talking about Stephen Hawking, and right. Hawking says we should not, right? Because they'll come and take our gerbs. <laughs> no, no, his his quote was that it it's like Columbus going to the New World, and it didn't work out so well for the American Indians, right? Uh, I say bring no. the chaos. I, I, yeah, I think that well, no. it couldn't get much worse. But <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think in a lot of ways, yeah, you're right. In in any, uh, you know, first contact situation, that yes, there are definitely winners and if losers they come on here, Earth, right? But right. maybe it's different if the other party isn't from Earth. Now, maybe it might be really severe. Might, there might be these huge shocks. Oh, wouldn't that be terrible if world religion crumbled because of it? But there might be other aspects mm -hmm. of it, too. Well, there might be, you know, some people's faith might be shaken. Some people's like, well, what is their economic structure like? Whatever. But the point is you're thinking way outside the box. And mm -hmm. that is something we desperately need right. to do. And, and that's what mm -hmm. I do appreciate about Stephen Hawking's analysis on the end of the universe. He kind of explained it a little further about the ideas of what the alien intelligences, you know, might be like. And, and it was really nice to have a brilliant mind attack this idea. That's true. Sagan's been dead for a while now, and we don't have yeah. people out there actively imagining these scenarios. That's true. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in the yeah. in the greater PBS land. I mean, obviously, sci-fi is filled with these kind of ideas, but to take them rationally, step by step, and walk down the path. But but his conclusion about the fact that they'd be after our water and rock, 
I mean, how much water and rock can you find in the universe without yeah. having to step on the ants that are living yeah, on the Yeah, it be easier to just to capture comets or something? And, That's right. I mean, if you're smart yeah. enough to go across interstellar distances, well, you're going to probably well, be Well, he was to... talking about harnessing the entire energy of a single sun. He was right. talking about massive, massive technological abilities beyond... Like Dyson spheres and... Yeah. Unbelievably beyond our ability to comprehend. And then the fact that they would come and, and somehow just destroy us, that we shouldn't be sending out messages to the cosmos, well, you know, if they're that brilliantly intelligent that they could trap the entire energy of an entire sun, I bet you they know we're here anyway. Yeah. I, I bet you they can see our little ant trails. You know? Yeah. I bet they can find us without mm -hmm. us sending. I mean, I love Lucy's already being broadcast anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, people right. got to know. I mean, I, my guess is is that, you know, considering the speed right. of light and everything, that they, they don't use radio. And you Well, you think of our, our telescopes yeah. and how they have to be isolated and they have to get away from all this, right. you know, noise. noise. That, that noise has got to be emanating somewhere, and I think it's fairly easy to know where that's coming from. Yeah, well, with each, each passing year, our broadcasts reach further out sure so it, they keep capturing more and more so other not, stars that might right hey what's that it's you not know, like the concentrated you know. burst they did from arecibo i mean it's just the shit's leaking all over it, yeah yeah we're, we're a leaky pipe so i mean if you if you looked they had in this one uh show the documentary that i watched they showed well yeah if you were trying to see the earth you know from this distance or whatever it would be hard to do it if you used this method or you know obviously the visible spectrum and everything but if you you know did radio astronomy man we light right up right right you know so you know i really yep. we can't stop talking about contact with alien intelligences without mentioning the jerry amen wow signal yes this is 1977 yep. carl sagan was highly tied to the seti program yes and helped work on their funding and, and he was very involved in helping set that up um, but this was the uh, this was the signal that was received when they started searching the skies for extraterrestrial life, much like SETI at home. Yes, yeah. it's almost the exact same thing. Yes, <laughs> and, and 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 Victor brings up a good point here because we at Tank Riot have a SETI at home team, which is simply just a way to uh, process signals from outer space on your own home computer and all these homes computers together form together to create one of the largest supercomputers it's like a gobot yeah yeah Mankind it's a great idea built. it really is and i know that that study is is you know really struggling for funding I, I wish i could remember the gentleman's name but i don't unfortunately he wrote a book recently and he broke away from SETI. he used to work for them and he was he was coming out with these really wild theories that instead of trying to contact them through you know radio telescope arrays, we should be looking for evidence of them here, you know, like in our in our genome and so forth. Which I just thought was asinine because I think now you're taking a interstellar perspective, and again you're contemplating your own fucking navel again. right now. And that that's the assumption that they were here already, which may or may not be. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I, just... I mean, I was kidding, but I do watch that ancient astronauts Stop. series because I know because <laughs> they bring up Eric von Daniken. And I just thought, are you yeah. and they actually present him. I mean, they ought to just have, you know, a, a title bar that says underneath Eric von Daniken. For the love of God, please don't listen to anything this man has ever said or written. <laughs> you know, he's a f complete goddamn hack. But they put him on there like he's this. You know, great scientists, and I'm like, my God, chariots of the gods, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, and that that's science can kind of be distracted when it comes to history or Discovery Channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're neither history. Nor oh, Discovery. I know. I mean, sometimes I really feel well. Look at the Learning Channel. The Learning Channel used to actually go from an educational channel to just the freak show it is now. Yeah, that's a circus sideshow. Oh God, yeah. But uh, I do have to say about the Wow Signal, this was a really exciting moment in 1977. Like. This guy was sitting there and all of a sudden saw something that looked pretty much exactly like they were thinking it might look to see an alien life form signal. Right. So the guy circles it and writes, wow, in the margin. Right. Now, I keep thinking, what if he wrote, holy shit? <laughs> you know, for the rest of time, we'd all be talking about, well, it was the holy shit signal. Yeah. I mean, he could have said far worse in the margin there. Holy shit. Like that onion cover where it's like, holy fucking shit, man lands on the fucking moon. What the fuck? I actually got that frame. That's awesome. I just thought it was so funny because that, that, that was exactly how I think everybody felt. It was right. like, holy fucking shit. So he had, the, he had the, I don't know, tenacity to write wow. But, you know, for a good... And then it disappeared. That was it. And they couldn't yeah. find it again. So someone had a hairdryer on or, you know, who knows oh, what. Oh, who knows. You know, there just, were no yeah. cell phones at the time, but who knows why that happened. But And they've been they've been looking for it again, but it's hard to trace because they were running dual signals at the time. So they're not exactly sure exactly where the wow signal was coming from. It's a really great mystery. Problem is, it's not solved. Even to this day, we still don't exactly yeah. know what the wow signal was, but... Well, we can't keep keep uh, clean cell phone tower transmissions. I know, so, I know. So, right. yeah. So, a signal from the other planet, yeah. It's to hard just to get say. a little bit yeah. in peace. It could have been scheduled for demolition, and <laughs> there were some Zargons or something that you know, yeah, destroyed yeah. the tower that was, you know, broadcasting to Earth at precisely the moment that we received the signal, and that's the only alien yeah. life signal we'll ever get. <laughs> the wow signal could be our only contact yeah. with alien life, but, I mean, look it up. It is a really great little story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and your computer could discover the next wow signal. It could. And, that is true, and, and you can sign up for that at tangrad.com. That exactly. Uh, we've got. We're, this is episode ninety-four. Episode one hundred is coming up, and I've established a goal on last episode that we want one hundred people signed up for SETI at home, and uh, another one hundred or the same hundred people signed up for folding at home. Folding at home is uh, like SETI, but instead of uh, measuring uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, they're working on protein folding, which will right. help cure disease like Parkinson's, yeah. Alzheimer's, and that. Absolutely. So both very worthy. Um, so efforts. I just want to encourage everybody to sign up for those, and let's see if we can meet the goal of 100 and 100. Yeah, we've been pushing the SETI at home for a long time, and and it's just a really nice thing that they're doing. And and hey, these are researchers. These guys came up with this with in the spirit of Telnet. I mean, this is the yeah. original reason why the internet is there was to mm-hmm. share computer cycles when your computer's not busy. So That's we've right. all got computers exactly. that are just doing nothing. This, this, is, this is science and we're pro-science. And, and they're really talking about less than a hundredth of your cycle. So if you want to play Halo, you can still play yeah. Halo. Put jacking <laughs> off on Facebook and, you know, help the surge. Jacking off on Facebook? Huh? <laughs> I didn't know there were pictures like that on Facebook. <laughs> oh, help me on my virtual farm. Be my friend. <laughs> God, I've I've had I've heard so many. I there's like no way in the world I'm ever going to be on Facebook. I just the whole idea of that just appalls me. Well, we are on Facebook at facebook.com/tank.riot. Not not me personally. Yeah. I don't want people to know that I'm Martin Borman. Someone else has a <laughs> tank riot 
thing they're doing. Instead, so, I'm Mr. Standish. I know. <laughs> I think even the fifth Beatle who's running our Facebook page has even told us we should talk about Carl Sagan. I hope he's not horribly disappointed. <laughs> I think we've covered Carl fairly well. Well, the one aspect we do yeah. have to bring up, and, and I think this is very tragic, is he had a, a very long, very painful, very difficult fight with uh, myodysplasia. Mm-hmm. And uh, he died of pneumonia, which is obviously from complications of bone marrow transplants at a very young age of 62. Yeah. I, I thought what, what, it was what, ironic. His last uh, television interview was given, I believe, with Charlie Rose. And I saw that. I saw mm-hmm. that interview. And, oh, really? Yeah. I, it's, it, you can see it on YouTube now because I went back and looked and it is on YouTube. And because I, I, I love Charlie Rose for some reason. I, I, just can't, I just can't help myself. I like his softballing. <laughs> I love his questions. I just love that guy's manner for some reason. No, I know. And uh, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was kind of fun to watch those two guys, you know, spitball it around a little bit. I thought it was interesting that uh, Carl Sagan's son, Nick, mm-hmm. um, Carl was married three times yeah. and, and had kids with each marriage. So there's many Sagans. Yeah. He wrote several episodes for the Star Trek franchise. And so there's an episode of Star- Nick did. His son, Nick. Nick did. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. uh, in an episode of, of Enterprise, uh, there was one called Terra Prime, which was... <clears throat> Actually, this two-part episode with uh, Peter Weller as this kind of, you know, Earth-only. Drop your weapon now. Yeah. <laughs> Draw. Oh, Buckaroo Banzai. Peter Buckaroo Weller. Banzai. That's it. I said in our Twitter feed, I want, I double-dog dare Quentin Tarantino to remake The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai or make a sequel. Well, there was a sequel mentioned at the very end. I know, and Quentin Tarantino should direct it. There you go. I seriously think so. I'm looking for John Big Booty. <laughs> laugh now, laugh all you can, monkey boy. <laughs> Sorry, I just Dr. Wow. Lizardo. Dr. Lizardo, John Lithgow. He was great. Vince, yeah, there's a lot of great people in that. So in this episode, uh, Terra Prime, there's a, a shot shown of uh, this, uh, the, the Sojourner rover. On uh, you know part of the Mars Pathfinder mission, and it was placed by a historical marker at the Carl Sagan Memorial Station on the Martian surface. The marker displays a quote from Sagan: "Whatever the reason you're on Mars, I'm glad you're there, and I wish I was with you." Mm. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, that's so cool. You know, yeah. he, and he gets accused sometimes of being egotistical. I think with the Cosmos thing, he had a bit of an issue with the director, and the director yeah. put in some of these spots with him looking stoically or smilingly at the cosmos about how grand right. it was and and i think those were added later yeah. but but he had these ideas like recording a tape that would go to mars that the uh, astronauts would play and it would be him pondering why they're on mars you know yeah and they're kind of big ideas but it's also hey look i'm carl sagan you know that yeah. yeah. i'm on mars <laughs> but well he he did a lot and like i say he's he's one of these people that you look back on how far-sighted he was so long ago, right? And how near-sighted we've become, right? So many years <laughs> and yeah. later. What's uh, truly amazing about the Cosmos series, though, is that you can watch it right now. You can go online and you can watch oh, it, yeah. and and it is not dated in the way. I mean, you will notice what we said about him worrying about disarmament and the fact that right. we were very close to annihilating ourselves, even into the Reagan era. And there's this concern that humanity could end. At any moment. Right. And he still, the lessons he says and, and his historical humanitarian ideas are really well told. And I think so, too. I think it stands up to the test of time because I watched yes. a couple of the episodes again and 
It's really neat. It really wraps up really well. The graphics are not Stargate yeah. SG one, but you know what well, <laughs> right. it is. Anyway. Well, they they yeah. had they had an episode of the X Files I remember where Fox Mulder was sitting at home, you know, in his weird little apartment, and he was watching some tape where Carl Sagan was talking about extraterrestrial life because he's you know one of the people that you know postulated the th- the field of exobiology, and mm-hmm. and of course Fox Mulder's yeah. you know watching it and taking it all down. I mean, this is like uh-huh. entertainment for Fox. Yeah, Cosmos really holds up. There, there's probably only just a few details in the whole series that science has, you know, proven oh, yeah. different than what he was saying. He was quite close on the mark, and very, it's still very educational. Very interesting man. Uh, contributed a lot to science, and I think that the, the uh, more popular view of science, which I, I believe we desperately, desperately need now. We do. I, I We've been pushing for this for a while to get... We got to get people more interested in actually thinking about science. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his his third wife and or rationalism. Let's just go with rationalism. Let's, let's just be rational, yeah. people. Let's just be rational. Uh huh. <laughs> Stop praying to whatever sky god yes. you've got and try to figure things out for yourself. Let's take the pejorative out of theory. Uh, but his wife Andrean, you know, when he died, she is a pretty devout atheist. Yes, and he, uh, which is funny when you say it. It is devout. <laughs> uh, but but she, when he died, she had this quote. I wanted to read it. She said, when my husband died, because he was so famous and known for not being a believer, many people would come up to me, and still sometimes happens, and ask me if Carl changed at the end and converted to a belief in an afterlife. They also frequently ask me if I think I will see him again. Carl faced his death with unflagging courage and never sought refuge in illusions. The tragedy was that we knew we would never see each other again. I don't ever expect to be reunited with Carl. Wow. I mean, that's pretty harsh. That's, wow. that's yeah. you know, those are some of the issues with, with atheism that, I mean, it's, in a certain sense, you can say, yes, I've read Dawkins, I've read Hitchens. And, mm-hmm. But when you honestly try to not just intellectually, but emotionally grasp the idea mm-hmm. of, of just what she said. Mm-hmm. You have to embrace the now. Right. That's it, right. I, it I makes mean, you care more about the cosmos. It makes you yeah. care more about the universe. It makes you care more about what you're experiencing every day because this is your time. Stop procrastinating and thinking that you're going to be rewarded for all the <laughs> shit and, and misery you have right now yeah. and try to figure maybe there's another way. So, yeah. and, but, but I mean, yeah, the, the concept of, no, you will not be reunited. You will not um, go through a blue tunnel and be asked to wait and take a number. No. Yes. But actually you, you, you might, if you're in an operation or in some way are experiencing the hallucinatory effects of right. oxygen deprivation on the brain. Studies have shown that that's yeah. a lot of where that comes from. This whole tunnel idea that you have these out of body experiences. There are yeah. scientific the reasons why system. your body throws yourself down these tunnels. The but, body's a system and, yeah. and um, you know, that system shut down. <laughs> Brought yeah. to you by Windows. And it gives you a lot of good drugs on the way out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> as long as you time it right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Gallows humor. <laughs> no, I want to go in an explosion myself, but I don't I don't want to just like winnow away in some bed. I would just rather explode. We could start building a cannon. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, not be shot out from oh. something. I'd rather just explode. <laughs> oh, we could. Oh, <laughs> maybe you should become a drummer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we just are looking for someone who can count to four over and over again. 
Well, gentlemen, any final thoughts on Carl Edward Sagan? Well, there's a hundred things we could say, and yes, we've, we've said about 150. I'm sure there's a hundred thousand more. Yeah, there's billions yeah. upon billions. billions upon, you know, the, which he yeah. never actually he never yeah. actually said. And I'm glad we made it to the end of the episode before clarifying that. Johnny Carson made fun about that. I think he wrote in Cosmos billions upon billions. Right. But and he whole, said it like one time. Yeah. And you know, he enunciated his B's like that because he really wanted the B to stand out from the millions. You know, right. He, he yeah. really wanted it to stand out. And yes, he did. You know, there was no H in human for him. And yeah, he had a he had a particular way of talking, but so did Mr. Rogers. That's true. Although <laughs> right. I would say Carl Sagan sometimes bordered on Mr. Mackey. You know, he had that yeah. kind of professorial way about billions upon billions. <laughs> the cosmic debris almost without end. Okay. Yeah. Gosh, I just love it. <laughs> but oh it's yeah, it's fun to listen to. Yeah, I yeah. yeah. It's and lyrical. It is yeah. lyrical. I, so. I remember years ago I saw a cartoon and and I can't remember the, the artist who did it. Maybe you guys remember, but it shows uh, a little kid staring at the stars and, and the caption is or the kids thinking there must be millions and millions of stars up there. And, and then the caption was uh, Carl Sagan as a child. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a good one. Yeah. I think that's a good one to end on, don't you, gentlemen? All righty. So, good evening from, it's not really very tropical here in Madison, Wisconsin, the heart of Scotty. It's Nation. monsoon season <laughs> lately. Oh. I am seeing, We're in the humididity. Let me just say zone. this about that on Scotty Nation. I've seen far too many billboards here in the uh, People's Republic of Madison that I don't appreciate. Uh-oh. Uh, as I was driving over to our, you know, hidden studio, I saw this enormous sign. Jesus Christ died for your sins. <laughs> I was like, God. You should have made better well, choices. Good yeah. for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's think next time, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then there was another one, and this was on the highway. This but wasn't I, actually. I mean, if they would follow the teachings of Jesus when they're. Well, it's like Gandhi said, to, "I love your yeah. Christ, but your followers." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what is it? Your followers? Yeah, not your followers so much or something. Scare like that. the hell out of me. Yeah. So, and then there was another. One. This was outside of Madison, actually, but um, it was uh, it was this big, enormous billboard that said. Uh, How's that hope and change working out for you? Paid for by a private citizen in Wisconsin. Yeah, I've seen those. I've seen yeah, those. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, okay, who's this private citizen? <laughs> yeah. Do you describe your religi religious institution as a compound? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. In any case, good night from Scotty Nation in its very heart, tropical Madison, Wisconsin. This is Tank Riot. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, 
every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. died for your sins now let's turn to psalm 333 jesus christ look at this play i'm not very good at uh, singing songs but uh, here's here's a try Like a float of dust in the morning sky. Sky, sky, sky. 
that the brain does much more than just recollect. It intercompares, it synthesizes, it analyzes, it generates abstractions. The simplest thought, like the concept of the number one, has an elaborate logical underpinning. The brain has its own language for testing the structure and consistency of the world. A still more glorious dawn awaits, not a sunrise, but a galaxy rose. The sky calls to us. If we do not destroy ourselves, we will one day venture to the stars.